Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In the mid-90s, horror movies were on life support, thanks in part to a slew of badly received sequels to iconic franchises like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Friday the 13th. And then, on December 20th, 1996, Casey Becker, a student at Woodsboro High School, got a phone call. Hello? Hello? Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Uh, I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Just some scary movie. Like scary movies. Uh huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. That call changed everything. It's the opening scene to a movie that gave new life to the scary movie business and inspired the teen movie boom of the late 90s. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the history of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're going to take apart the classic horror movie Scream and look closer at some of its iconic moments. Like Ghostface would say, we're going to gut it like a fish. We'll look back at how Scream came to be, including the little-known story of its inspiration. And we'll try to understand why it became the most successful slasher movie franchise in history and how it continues to influence horror movies over 20 years later. Scream was like no other horror movie before. Because it wasn't just terrifying, it was also incredibly self-aware. From that opening scene, when Drew Barrymore is asked, what's your favorite scary movie? It was pretty clear this wasn't what we were used to. Scream was unique. The characters knew about slasher movies and ironically recognized they were in the middle of one. According to screenwriter Kevin Williamson, a scary movie should be like a roller coaster. It needs to hit all the buttons, making you laugh, jump, and scream all in one little thrill ride. Most importantly, it needs to be about fear. Williamson took us on a thrill ride like nothing we had ever experienced before when he wrote Scream. Before it, he was a failed actor taking screenwriting classes at UCLA. After it, he was crowned the king of teen movies and TV. In addition to writing three sequels to Scream, he created the popular I Know What You Did Last Summer franchise. And we can thank Williamson for another 90s milestone of teen culture, Dawson's Creek. In 1998, Williamson told CNN that he was inspired to write Scream after a spooky night while house-sitting. He was alone in the house watching something on TV about the Gainesville Ripper. In 1990, serial killer Danny Rowling brutally murdered five college students in Gainesville, Florida during a three-day rampage. He broke into the homes of young women and killed them in grisly ways. The brutality of the murders shocked the nation and paralyzed the university town with fear. Williamson said, 
I was watching this Barbara Walters special on the Gainesville murders, and I was getting so spooked. I was being scared out of my mind. During the commercial break, I heard a noise, and I had to go search the house. And I went into the living room, and a window was open. And I'd been in this house for two days, and I'd never noticed the window open. So I got really scared. I went to the kitchen, got a butcher knife, got the mobile phone, and I called a buddy of mine. Williamson said that buddy started teasing him about classic horror films, which made him even more scared. While on the phone with his friend, he started looking under beds, and then he decided to go outside to look in the garage. His friend said, well, don't go outside. The killer's going to sneak in the door while you're outside. Williamson was like, what do you mean? What do you mean, the killer? He went to bed so spooked that he ended up having nightmares. He woke up at three or four in the morning and he started writing the opening scene to Scream. Williamson quickly outlined the movie, which he initially called a scary movie. It would be a small town murder mystery featuring a group of self-aware 90s teenagers being stalked and murdered by a serial killer. In his mind, the script would deconstruct the rules of slasher films as much as it would celebrate them. In 2016, Williamson told Entertainment Tonight that he wanted to write and make the type of movie that wasn't being made at the time. He said, every generation has that one movie. There were no other horror movies. The ones that were coming out, they weren't very exciting. The horror movie genre at the time was a steady stream of straight-to-video movies that ended up in bargain bins and an endless array of boring Michael Myers sequels. Horror writer John Muir says that horror films of the 90s were looking for a new identity. That's because in the late 1980s we were seeing sort of the end stage of the slasher film subgenre and also it's very creative offshoot, what I call rubber reality films. And of course, I got that phrase from Wes Craven. That's not my phrase. But he called films like Nightmare on Elm Street rubber reality because Freddy was able to not only, you know, slash people with his finger knives, but, um, you know, but alter their reality. So you might consider films like Hellraiser as another rubber reality film. But those films had begun to really run their course through sort of sequel after sequel. Horror writer Stephen West agrees. He says in the 90s, Hollywood had started to turn away from the traditional slasher movie. Um, Basically, horror had kind of exhausted itself with the Freddies and Jasons. And it was in a stage where a lot of the tropes and conventions of horror had crept into mainstream thrillers. So you have stuff like at the end of the decade, you have Fatal Attraction, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. These are basically horror films, but they're dressed up as thrillers with big name stars and nice production values. And you have a a lot of quote unquote thrillers like The Silence of the Lambs, which again, they're, they're kind of horror movies, but they're respectable enough to not have the horror label. Then Scream came along and turned the entire scary movie genre on its head. In 1994, Bob Weinstein, brother of the now-disgraced Harvey Weinstein, started his own division of Miramax called Dimension Films, a company that would produce and distribute genre movies. 
Two years later, producers at Dimension Films read a script called Scary Movie. It blew them away. They ran to Bob Weinstein and told him they had to buy it. Weinstein agreed. In a 2015 article on Deadline, Weinstein wrote, It was everything I was looking for. Smart, diabolical, funny, and above all, scary as hell. Weinstein wanted just one change. He didn't like the title. He thought Scary Movie was too on the nose. He suggested Scream, which was the name of a hugely popular song and video released that year, starring Michael Jackson and his sister Janet. Screenwriter Kevin Williamson reluctantly agreed to the name change. The Scary Movie title was dumped, for now. You might remember that it would be used for the Wayans Brother franchise that parodied slasher films like Scream. Weinstein had one person in mind to direct Scream, horror movie legend Wes Craven. He was responsible for such classics as Nightmare on Elm Street and The Hills Have Eyes. Craven read the script, and to everyone's surprise, he took a hard pass. He liked the script's irreverence and humor, but according to writer Stephen West, it wasn't what Craven was looking for. There's a sense throughout Wes Craven's career um, that he, he constantly tried to escape from the horror genre. Um, he, his career has a kind of an extraordinary thing where he delivered an iconic horror film in every decade. You know, in the 70s, it was Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes. The 80s was Nightmare on Elm Street and the 90s was Scream. But in between, he struggled with kind of more mainstream stuff. Um, the film he made before Scream was a real attempt to get away from it, which was Vampire in Brooklyn, which is um, a horror comedy with Eddie Murphy. So a big star vehicle which was another way that he was trying to escape from the shackles of being the guy that made Freddy Krueger. Weinstein had no choice. He started looking around at other directors, including Robert Rodriguez, who would go on to direct Dust Till Dawn and work with Williamson on The Faculty. Over the next six weeks, as he was talking with a who's who of great directors, Weinstein called Craven two more times and asked him if he would reconsider. Craven politely declined and said he was moving in another direction. Then a couple of weeks later, out of the blue, Craven called Weinstein back. He explained that he had reread the script several times and had now come to clearly see the movie in his head. He asked if the opportunity was still available and if so, he would like to take the job. Weinstein wrote in the Deadline article, Faster than the speed of light, I said yes. Casting was the next big step for Scream. Drew Barrymore told Entertainment Weekly in 2011 that she went bananas when she read the script. She was the first cast member to sign on to the film to play the lead role of Sydney. But Barrymore soon changed her mind. She actually wanted to play Casey Becker, who you heard from at the top of the show. You might remember, that's the character who's killed in the iconic opening sequence. Barrymore said the scene reminded her of the classic 1979 thriller, When a Stranger Calls. It's about a babysitter who's menaced by a prank caller who, spoiler alert, turns out to be calling from inside the house. As a babysitter in the 80s, I can tell you that movie scarred me for life. 
Wes Craven wasn't sure how that would play. Barrymore, the most famous actor cast in the movie, killed off in less than 13 minutes? After giving it some thought, Craven decided it could end up being like the 90s version of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, where actor Janet Leigh is killed off in that famous shower scene one-third of the way through the movie. Psycho was the first time that a movie used what has become known as the false protagonist, a character who seems to be the central figure, but usually, in a shocking plot twist, gets moved out of the spotlight. And that's exactly what happened with Barrymore. We'll get into that in a little bit, but let's wrap up the rest of the casting first. So after Craven agreed that Barrymore would play Casey in the opening scene instead of Sydney, the hunt was on for someone to replace her. Bob Weinstein considered Reese Witherspoon and Claire Danes, who were then the most in-demand actresses in young Hollywood, but they both passed. Brittany Murphy and Melissa Joan Hart were among the actresses who auditioned, until Craven settled on Nev Campbell, one of the stars of the hit TV drama Party of Five. She was also coming off major box office success with the teen witchcraft classic The Craft. As for the role of Gail Weathers, the amoral, tough-as-nails tabloid reporter, Brooke Shields and Janine Garofalo were both approached, but they turned it down. Then Wes Craven got a letter from Courtney Cox. She was on her third season of Friends at the time. Cox told Entertainment Tonight in 2016 that after reading the script, she decided to go for it. She wrote a letter that said, I'm always known as being so sweet, but I really can be a bitch. Craven was won over and Cox was signed on. Indie queen Rose McGowan, fresh off the hit The Doom Generation, assumed the role of Sydney's best friend Tatum. McGowan is now known as one of Harvey Weinstein's most vocal accusers. She was the first to come forward to say she had been raped by Weinstein, who continues to deny the allegation. As for the rest of the Scream ensemble, newcomers Skeet Ulrich, David Arquette, Jamie Kennedy, and Matthew Lillard filled out the roster. David Arquette told Entertainment Tonight in 2016 that he knew right from the beginning that lightning had struck with the cast. He said, There was a scene I had early on in the film at the school, and it was the same day that a bunch of the kids were there, and the energy of all those people together let me know this was something special. Arquette famously went on to marry and have a child with co-star Courtney Cox. They met in the first Scream and were having marital problems by the time they filmed Scream 4 and separated soon after. They divorced in 2013. When it came to the now iconic look of Scream's killer, described only as wearing a ghostly white mask in Williamson's script, producer Marianne Maddalena stumbled upon something in a child's bedroom while location scouting a terrifying ghost mask inspired by the classic Edward Munch painting, The Scream. Unable to track down the rights owners, Craven asked the props department to develop a modified version, which was a bit more bug-eyed and rounder than the original. That's the mask they used when shooting first started. 
then, a few weeks in, Dimension snagged the rights to the original mask. So if you look closely, you might be able to spot the difference. Watch it again and look for it in the long shots during the murders of Casey and the hard-nosed principal played by Henry Winkler. Writer Stephen West says the white-faced killer from Scream has become iconic. Ghostface, as you know, he's crossed over like Jason and Michael and all of those because you can buy him as Halloween. Everybody's, um, you know, shopping for Ghostface costumes and have been for a long time. So the the uh, the mask and the costume became iconic, but it's unique in the sense that the Scream franchise has loads of people playing Ghostface. So so it's an iconic slasher, but it's an iconic slasher where the costume and mask is hiding a variety of different characters as they're unmasked in a kind of Scooby-Doo fashion throughout the franchise. The voice of Ghostface came from actor Roger L. Jackson, who incidentally also voiced Mojo Jojo on the Powerpuff Girls. Uh-huh. There it is, the most dangerous, most nefarious, most evilly destructive weapon in history! <laughs> Weird, right? Jackson, who would go on to voice Ghostface in all four Scream movies, was intentionally kept from meeting the cast to preserve the mysterious, scary nature of his character. In 2015, he told Splinter News about filming that first scene with Barry Moore. The first night, I was sort of under a tent. Not really a tent, just four poles with a piece of fabric on top, because it was raining. And I was outside the window of the room they were filming in. So I could see Barry Moore through the window, but she couldn't see me. As in every scene, I'm actually talking on a cell phone connected to her phone, but I'm also miked to get a clean sound. After that first night, whenever we would film from then on, I was in a room somewhere nearby, sequestered with a monitor to watch my camera feed. Jackson said he only ever talked to Barrymore in the ghost-faced voice, and to this day, he has still never met her. Just recently, he met Nev Campbell and Skeet Ulrich for the first time, at the Monster Mania convention. Now let's talk about that iconic opening sequence. You heard some of it at the beginning of the show. Drew Barrymore plays all-American girl next door, Casey Becker. She's at home alone at night in a house with a ton of windows and glass doors when she receives a phone call from a stranger. The scratchy-voiced man asks her what she's doing and Casey says she's about to watch a scary movie. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around and stalks babysitters? Yeah. What's yours? Guess. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary. Well, the first one was, but the rest sucked. The call takes a dark turn, and he admonishes her for making typical slasher movie mistakes. (laughs) Who's there? Who's there? I'm calling the police. (laughs) You should never say who's there. Don't you watch 
watch scary movies. It's a death wish. After Casey discovers her boyfriend Steve tied to a chair on the patio outside her house, the caller terrorizes Casey by asking her horror movie trivia while threatening Steve's life. Steve doesn't survive, and 12 minutes and 40 seconds into the film, Casey is killed too. Writer John Muir says this scene showed us that Scream was going to be a slasher film on steroids. There's terror, there's humor, and then at the end, there's shock because Drew Barrymore is our star and she's gone before, you know, essentially the credits even roll, right? You know, at the beginning of the story. So it's like it, it, it took what we knew, it accounted for that, and then pushed beyond what we knew so that we were just utterly sort of shocked. At, at, at what had happened. Barrymore's death scene was among the first to be filmed, and it took five nights to shoot. Filmed at a house in Santa Rosa, California, Craven shot the scene in sequence, which is a rarity in movie making. She told Entertainment Weekly in 2011 that before shooting, she would run around until she was hyperventilating. And because she wanted real tears, Craven would tell her a trigger story of animal cruelty to keep her believably upset. The scene serves as a shorter film within the larger story, and it perfectly primes the audience for what's to come. It's been hailed by many as one of the best opening sequences in any slasher movie ever. Bob Weinstein, who had promised Wes Craven he wouldn't meddle with the making of the movie, wasn't thrilled with the opening sequence. He was worried it was too brutal. He disliked the wig chosen for Drew Barrymore. He thought her wardrobe needed to be racier. And Weinstein despised the ghost face mask. Weinstein told Deadline in 2015 that when he asked Craven why the scene was so terrifying and bloody, Craven explained that there was a method to his madness. Craven told Weinstein that if you scared the shit out of the audience at the top of the film, that everything that followed, be it the opening of a window or a door or someone sneezing, would have the audience at the edge of their seats. Craven actually wanted the opening scene to be even more horrific. The original version included a shot of Casey's boyfriend, Steve, with his innards tumbling out of his belly. That scene was cut when the American Film Certification Board threatened to give the movie an NC-17 rating, which would have gutted Scream's commercial prospects. As for the Scream mask, Bob Weinstein told Vanity Fair in 2011 that he thought it was goofy and that people would laugh at it. Weinstein requested that the opening sequence be shot seven different times with seven different masks. Confident that the mask would work, Craven ignored Weinstein's request, finished shooting the opening scene his way, rapidly edited it, and sent it to Weinstein. Later that day, Weinstein sent a voice message approving the scene. He said, that was effing great. You guys were right. I was wrong. I was so wrong. It's effing amazing. Anything you guys want. Anything. Scream was released across the U.S. on December 20th, 1996. That's right, a Christmas release. 
That was Weinstein's idea. This is usually when prestige movies, Oscar contenders, and family-oriented movies come out. A teen horror movie? Not so much. Jack Lechner, a former development executive, told Vanity Fair in 2004 that everybody in the company, everybody outside the company, everybody thought he was crazy. Who releases a bloody slasher movie at Christmas? Scream opened against Beavis and Butthead Do America, which did $20 million on the first weekend, while Scream did a mere $6.3 million. It looked like Weinstein had lost his gamble. But reviews were strong, and the film experienced unprecedented growth as it continued to screen through the Christmas season. In its second weekend, business nearly doubled, despite an increase of just 37 cinemas. The ads for the movie prominently featured Drew Barrymore, which author Alexandra West says was a pretty smart marketing ploy. They put her at the forefront of the poster. So when you were seeing that screen poster with all these kind of beautiful, glossy faces looking back at you, Drew Barrymore is right at the front. So it's only natural to assume that she's going to be our protagonist. She's someone I'm familiar with. She's going to make it to the end. And then when she dies, this incredibly harrowing death, it's quite shocking. And I think it sets you up in that film to expect the unexpected. In the weekends that followed, Scream's box office numbers went up and up and up. People saw the movie five and six times. It became a communal experience, with viewers saying lines from the movie as they played out. It ended up grossing $100 million on a budget of just $14 million, cementing itself as a true cult classic and revitalizing the entire horror film genre. Scream was a relatively simple slasher flick, but it had one unique element that made it so popular. The movie was self-aware. The characters knew about other slasher films, spent much of their time referencing other slasher films, and ironically recognized that they were living inside of a slasher film. Scream was making fun of all the horror movie tropes that dominated the scary movies of the 80s. And we were all in on the joke. There's that great scene when Randy Meeks, played by Jamie Kennedy, lays out the rules of a horror movie. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back, because you won't be back. It attacked horror cliches with a winking meta approach. The result was a black comedy horror that had the audience screaming and laughing in equal measures. Scream was praised by critics and fans alike, and its self-aware style was soon copied. Following Scream's box office success, rival studios rushed to capitalize on the new slasher boom, realizing the financial potential of casting recognizable but inexpensive actors in low-budget thrillers. 
a new genre was born that centered on wisecracking, sexy teens trying to survive a maniacal killer. Horror movie fans were treated to the birth of new franchises, like I Know What You Did Last Summer and Urban Legends, and the return of old characters like Michael Myers in Halloween H20. It was the launch of the 90s teen horror cycle. From 1996 to 2000, there was an explosion of slasher films, like Idle Hands, Disturbing Behavior, The Faculty, and Cherry Falls. According to a Vice article in 2018, teen horror movies in the late 90s were a massive commercial success, and they got the same kind of coverage in the media that Marvel movies get today. The success of Scream also contributed to the late 90s teen movie boom. Studios recognized that relatively low-budget high school movies stocked with the cast of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Dawson's Creek could actually turn a profit. Scream and the slew of teen horror movies that followed in the 90s shifted the traditional role of the villain. Alexandra West, who you heard from earlier, is author of the book The 1990s Teen Horror Cycle, Final Girls and a New Hollywood Formula. She says horror movies of the past encouraged the audience to cheer on the bloody doings of the villains. By casting popular actors, singers, and models as the protagonists, the new 90s teen horror aligned their young audiences with the potential victims. They were the star of the show. Not scary bad guys like Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, who became pop culture heroes. And many of the teen horror movies featured a young female victim as the star. Wes says these films spoke to a generation of girls who were coming of age and looking for stories that represented their lives and varied experiences. They really dealt in, you know, female protagonists and even some antagonists who were much more fully formed and they fought back against uh, patriarchal notions. They embodied a lot of that kind of feminist riot girl to girl power kind of uh, stance where they were reclaiming their own narratives in, in many ways, even though they're still fun, sometimes silly, sometimes a bit goofy slashers. And West says Scream managed to do that without overtly sexualizing female characters, except when they chose to do so. And that was a big shift from the horror movies of the 80s. You know, but there was a lot of, you know, sexualization of the female body, a lot of female nudity, which, and a lot of gore directed specifically at the female body that um, feels very distancing sometimes for a female audience, you know, horror audience who wants to kind of get in there and enjoy these films. Take Halloween. It featured many of the genre tropes that dominated horror movies in the 80s. Villain Michael Myers targeted teenagers who were having sex or drinking underage. Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Laurie Stroud, was the only one not drinking or having sex. And she was the only one to survive, the classic final girl trope. Scream shifted the rulebook in that we were asked to root for middle America teen Sydney Prescott, rather than the masked killer stalking her. Sydney loses her virginity to her boyfriend in Scream, 
and she isn't punished for it with death. Instead, she puts a bullet in his head. Like most horror trends, the Scream-era slasher boom eventually faded out. Here's writer Stephen West. Horror has always gone through these cycles, you know, whether it's the gothic or whether it's zombie movies, um, the slasher movies in the 70s and 80s. And I just think there was only so far they could go with the idea of the kind of self-aware slasher movie. But there may have been another factor for the pivot away from movies like Scream. In a 2018 Vice article, Adam White writes that the mass shooting at Columbine High School in April 1999 suddenly took youth violence out of movie theaters and into the real world, with right-wing reactionaries claiming Hollywood was partly to blame for the tragedy. Whether it was justified or not, the film industry decided to turn a corner in response. Scream 3, which originally focused on a cult of high schoolers plotting to kill Sydney, was rewritten as a Hollywood satire, the franchise's typical violence drastically changed. Teen movies featuring ruthless adolescents were given little promotion and ultimately flopped, while a third I Know What You Did Last Summer was quietly shelved. The world was ready to laugh rather than scream. Scary Movie, the Wayans Brother parody, inspired by the 90s slasher boom, became one of the runaway smashes of 2000 grossing $300 million worldwide. Writer John Muir believes that the slasher renaissance of the 90s might have lasted a bit longer if it weren't for one other important event. And I I think you would see that Scream's influence would have gone on even longer if not for the galvanizing national event of 9-11, which sort of turned horror movies forever, you know, because 9-11 just changed the dynamics of the culture so much. And we began to get into things like, you know, the torture porn format or the found footage format. Despite the ultimate end to the 90s teen horror cycle, its influence is ever present. Scream's blending of violence and scares with self-aware comedy can be seen throughout modern film and television. Most obviously, in the largely unrelated Scream MTV spin-off of the same name, which ran from 2015 to 2019. But also in TV series like Scream Queens and iZombie, and Joss Whedon's 2012 satire The Cabin in the Woods. And there are reports that a TV reboot of I Know What You Did Last Summer might be coming to Amazon sometime soon. The character-driven feminism of Scream was also displayed by Emily Blunt in 2018's breakout horror smash A Quiet Place and in 2015's The Final Girls. After a slew of horrible sequels, in 2018, the Halloween franchise returned to what worked in the 90s. A movie that was both slasher and meta-comedy, To quote a review in Rolling Stone magazine, the latest Halloween turned the Jamie Lee Curtis final girl character into a hardcore Avenger. And fans seemed to love it. It made $77 million in its opening weekend, making it the second best opening ever for the month of October. Horror movies, whether they're traditional slasher films, B-rated schlock movies, or psychological thrillers, never seem to go out of style. 
you know, it almost feels like it's a rite of passage for every generation of teenagers. Here's author Alexander West. But I think we all kind of want to dip our toe in it. You want to walk right up to that line and see if you can cross it. Uh, So it feels like you're doing something kind of bad and something kind of naughty by watching them. Stephen West says there's something about going to a theater filled with people and getting scared out of your mind. I think it is that that great communal experience, just like watching a really good comedy in a cinema to share the laughter, to, to share the kind of escapist fear of something like Scream um, with an audience. is just a fantastic feeling. Horror legend Wes Craven died in August 2015. He was 76 years old. Because Scream was so closely linked to Craven, it's hard to imagine the franchise continuing without him. But writer John Muir thinks it's not out of the question. The success of Halloween 2018 with Jamie Lee Curtis going back to the original continuity did provide, I think, an opening for the possibility of a Scream 5 uh, in that vein. You know, to to revisit Nev Campbell, uh, you know, her character, Sidney Prescott, all these years later, I, I think that is possible. Just like the killer in every horror movie ever made... Scream will probably rise up and scare you at least one more time, long after you thought it was already dead. You've been warned, so be prepared. Thanks for joining me on this spooky journey back to the 90s to take another look at the movie Scream. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard on this episode. There'll be links to all of the guests you heard from John Muir, Alexandra West, and Stephen West. Thanks to all of them for sharing their passion about horror movies for this episode. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And of course, you can email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.